you know, for 35 years now, I've been a professional writer. And I say one thing, that things have changed in my life, but one thing hasn't, and that is that when I pick up a pen, and I normally write with a fountain pen, I get that same sense of excitement, of anything is possible, of, of this is fantastic, this is fun, this is going to change the world, this is, yes, going to sell 10 million copies, even if it doesn't, every single time. And actually, that goes back to even when I was 10 years old, when I opened a book with that excitement. I'm all for enthusiasm and encouragement and trying to get people to raise their game above Alex Ryder, above what I'm doing, and, and you know, above YA fiction and into, you know, the, the, into, into great literature. But I really dislike the idea that anybody would try to prevent anybody from reading what they enjoy, whether it's Mills and Boone to, to, to whatever, you know, it's just reading is a muscle and the more you exercise it, the greater use mm. you can get from it. I'd love another horror, it's Bond. We are very kind, Phil, and I would love, I can tell you in all honesty, I would love to write another one and indeed do have a beginning of an idea in my head. Hello, welcome to another bestsellers with Phil Williams. And Natalie Jameson. And today's is with one of my most favourite people in the world. Never mind favourite writers, favourite people in the world. And had you had you interviewed this person before? I had. I had I don't think I'd done like sort of lots of big sit-down interviews, which you've probably done with Anthony Horowitz. Um, but yes, on lots of red carpets and various events. And once I think at the Cannes Film Festival even. Oh, wow. Mm. I only did the Cannes Film Festival once, right? And I found it the weirdest thing. Did you enjoy it? Um, I had a run when I went for, oh, I can't remember how many how many years now, but quite a lot of years. And it's strange. Uh, yes, I enjoyed it in some ways because it's just the bizarrest glimpse into the really, really rich and famous. Mm. Um, but it's kind of so weird because uh, even when you're working there, everything is ridiculously expensive and yeah. you have to stay in the strangest, cheapest places that are generally quite awful. Um, and uh, I kind of, my sort of main takeaway from working, reporting at the Cannes Film Festival is you sort of have to re report on all these really glamorous events whilst I've kind of been running up and down uh, the croisette um, and yes. getting really sweaty and feeling yes. really kind of like yeah. ugly and messy and you kind of like, because everything's so busy and you're kind of, yeah. yeah, you just have to cover like miles and miles and the only way you can do it is by running or walking um, in really, really uh, hot heat and, yeah. I also had a memory of bun fights just to get into screens. Yeah, yeah. Quite as aggressive. if it wasn't ticketed, really aggressive. Mm. Like you almost had to shove your way through a door to make sure you got in. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's it. changed now. We should say, just in case it has. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking mid 2000s when I was there. You're probably yeah. the same, are you? Yeah, yeah, a bit, yeah, yeah, a little bit later, but yeah, around that time. I just remember thinking when we landed it. Oh, amazing! We've landed the Cannes Film Festival, mm. and as we were flying back, thinking, I'm never going back to that place again. <laughs> I think I did enjoy it overall. There's a lot of camaraderie amongst the reporters who cover it because I think there's the understanding that it's... I know it's that thing where if you say, like, oh, I'm working at the Cannes Film Festival, mm. nobody obviously has any sympathy for you at all, but it is actually quite challenging when you're there in lots of ways. And, yeah, it's just sort of um, schedules change at the last minute and, yes, you're interviewing incredible people, but it's it's highly stressful. And, yeah, these, these are kind of in the days as well where you're having to send audio files for a radio report back when the tech really couldn't support it so it would just be that thing of going it's sending it's sending and people go it's not here it's not gonna make it to air and then you're like but i've just like busted a cup for 12 hours and i'm really tired and hungry um so a lot of that 
yeah, we discovered very early on, you know what the trick to that is? What? Don't send your audio back. <laughs> just keep it. Just keep it and sit on it it's and play it in yourself. Always been my problem. Always been my yeah. problem. Far too diligent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Right, let's get to Mr. Horowitz then because he's a, a writing genius. He's a lovely man. And um, Moonflower Murders is the book. And it's a follow-on from Magpie Murders. And it's a book within a book, which, you know, he'll explain in more detail here. But I just think how audacious to attempt to do yeah. a book within a book. It do is. you know what I mean? Yeah, and I've already recommended this book to so many people. Have um, you? That's great. Yeah, yeah, I really have because I just... It was such a brilliant distraction from everything else going on. I, you know, I properly wanted to get back to this at bedtime and just read a few more pages because I was so involved in the story and couldn't work out who done it, where it was going to go. And before we move on, um, because I know we haven't done our traditional who's listening to us. In oh, you're right world, as well. You're right. But that's okay. I have prepared for you because I kept forgetting to do this for weeks. Um, uh, see ya, Phil. Yeah. That is hello in Hungarian. All right, hang on. Do you want me to match the uh, listeners up to the hellos? You can do. We have got listeners in Hungary. We have, we have. Uh, it's on the third page here, because we've got so many. Uh, we've got <laughs> one listener in Hungary, so what is it, Sia? Uh, Sia, yeah. Do you have to say that with a chandelier on your head? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's spelled S-Z-I-A, <laughs> by the way. Um, I will now say, Yebo uh, Seja. Can I guess? Yeah. Poland? Nope. South Korea? Correct. Hello Ooh. in South Korean, and I'm really sorry if I did that really badly. Yabo Seya. Yabo Seya. Yeah. Nice. And then the last one I prepared for you is Dien Dobrai or Dien Dobri, because I'm not sure how they say mm, it. That sounds Eastern European to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. In that case, uh, Norway. No, that's no. not in Eastern Europe. <laughs> Go back to geography school. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, I said po- not Poland, is it? It actually is Poland. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, I, I, I discounted it because I'd already guessed it. Yeah, hello in Polish. Dzień dobry or dobry. Yeah. I've got quite a few Polish friends who are <laughs> going to slam me for my butchering of their language. Your Apologies. WhatsApp's going to be busy when yeah. this episode goes Sorry. up. <laughs> oh, well, hello to those countries anyway. And uh, yeah, this I like this, by the way, Nat, of, of you now learning languages. I yeah. think we need to keep this going. Exactly. It's educational, informative and entertaining. Lord Reith has already downloaded it. <laughs> here's Anthony Horowitz, or here's one of us saying, here's Anthony Horowitz. And today's featured writer on bestsellers needs no introduction, so he's not getting one. I'm just going to say welcome to Anthony Horowitz. It's such a joy. How are you doing? I'm very, very well, Phil, and very happy to be talking to you. If only your listeners knew what a performance it's been just to get to this one moment when we're talking to each other with all the technology running. Entirely my fault, I have to say, but here we are. Fantastic. Listen, this is easy compared to what happened when we did Linda LaPlante in episode two and we lost the entire recording. Don't, don't. speak. Don't, don't speak too soon. The, the, the internet here... Exactly, don't jinx it. Have yeah. you learnt nothing? Nothing. <laughs> so Moonflower Murders is why we're all here. It's where we're going to start. We'll do some other stuff with you as well, but um, obviously we've both loved this book. I say obviously because you knew I was a fan of Magpie Murders, but interesting, Natalie hadn't read Magpie Murders and came to this afresh, and so um, I'm going to toss you the baton, Nat, and you can do the first question about the book within a book. Yeah, so, well, I didn't realise that there was going to be a book within a book to start with. And when I got to that point of Moonflower Murders, I was like, is he going to go into the other book? I was so genuinely excited. And it was such a kind of like, 
I feel this is bad if it's a plot twist spoiler for anybody listening who hasn't read it yet. Um, and we won't give away huge spoilers, by the way, throughout this chat because we don't want to do that at all. But um, I was so excited. If you, say who, if you say who did it, if you tell anybody who did it, there will be two more murders, you and Phil. But just, just uh, say you know, but go on. The Zoom uh, murders, that's book three. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's Natalie, fine. go on. Um, so I was just really excited when I, I suddenly realised I was going to get a bonus book within a book and... It was, oh, it's just so clever. Like, which bit came first? I, I assume it has to be the book within the book that comes first because that's where all the clues are. Um, actually, I have a feeling it started with the book ah. outside the book. Because, I mean, first of all, what readers will know, that is a trick mm. I play. In Magpie Murders, it was a book that was unfinished, the missing chapter. The last chapter had gone missing and the main character, Susan Ryland, had to travel to Suffolk to find the missing chapter, which actually unearthed a mystery and a murder itself. Um, the second one is a historic murder, and the mystery of it is, is concealed inside a completed book. So um, that's, that's how that one works. It is different this time, but, but sort of the same. And in talking about that, I've now forgotten... <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, which came first? The difficulty was this. I had to, first of all, construct an interesting modern murder. Modern murders are very different to golden age ones because people in the 21st century tend to kill each other for quite different reasons from people in Agatha Christie novels or Ellery Queen novels mm -hmm. or whatever. So coming up with a modern murder as to why a man called Frank Paris is murdered in a hotel in, the, uh, in, in Suffolk was where I began. And that was the first thought. And then I had to consider... What was it that was inside the book, within the book, that could inform this outer murder? How could I construct a plot that would be like a distorting mirror uh, onto the modern world? Because that's all Susan has to go on, really, is what's in this book. And so it was, I started with, with the, the outer murder, and then I constructed the inner murder to reflect it. And the other difficulty, I hope this conversation's not getting really too complicated and, <laughs> and even, dare I say it, dull, but... Um, but, but, um, but the other big problem was how to do a, two completely different stories. Mm. Um, the idea is that Alan Conway, has the author, has visited this hotel and has found out about this 21st century murder and writes his own version of it, but no reader wants to read the same murder twice, so it had to be two completely different stories, but nonetheless somehow interconnected. And that took me many, many months to work out. Yeah. And how did you do that, Anthony? Have you got flowcharts all over walls? A lot of alcohol, Phil, uh, and a lot of uh, chocolate uh, late into the night, and a lot of flowcharts too, a lot of drawings. Not on the walls, I have little notebooks that I keep, and um, I just, as the ideas come, I just keep adding them. To, I, I write down questions for myself before I go to bed. Why did the killer go through that door? And then when I wake up, hopefully I've got the answer. And I know that you're meticulous in your planning. Is there anybody that within your family maybe who reads this and is there sort of that one person who will always spot that but why did they like leave that door open or whatever the one thing might be um i try not to leave holes in mm. i get quite cross especially <laughs> if i'm watching a detective show on television if there is a hole in the plot if mm. i find myself watching a show even if i've enjoyed it if there's a question at the end of it why did they do that why did he go through that door when he could have gone through the window for example um i get angry and I, and, and such so i i spend a lot of time trying to plug these holes i'm not saying that i'm perfect my family reads the books my wonderful wife jill green who is the producer of most of my tv shows is always my first port of call but she's hopeless at guessing, so I sort of know I can get away with stuff with her. Um, 
my editor at Random House is much, much sharper. And, and also the head of Random House, Susan Sandon. I should say that Susan Sandon, uh, who is who's sort of, you know, is the boss at Random House, and Selena Walker, my editor, both appear in the book, though very, very heavily disguised. Uh, it took them weeks, months to find themselves after I told them they were there. But um, they are brilliant. They're brilliant at plugging holes, at spotting holes and plugging them. Mm. Um, and they ask the questions I don't want to hear, <laughs> uh, which I then have to go, because that means I have to go and do some more writing to solve them. Yeah. And also, incidentally, one other thing I do is that when the book first goes out to the first round of people, that is to say my publishers and my family, my sister is very, very good at guessing, unlike my mm. wife. And if she guesses, I will then readdress it. I'll say, how did you guess? She'll say, oh, it's page 47. Page 47, I tear up. And then no one else yeah. will. And I'll re- yeah. put something else in its place. So just on that, I want to say that I, I'm not very good at guessing because I'm, I DM'd Anthony on Friday and I said, I think you've given us a huge clue with blank. And he said, what, have you, got, have you got it already? And I hadn't finished. I want to reassure you, now I've finished, I was way off the mark on two scores. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Two opera scores, you might yeah. say. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say as well, I, I really like guessing. And there was a line in this book that really made me smile because, again, I can't remember if it's in the 21st century bit or in the, the sort of golden age, the, um, the sort of 1940s, 50s section. Um, but when you're talking about how with whodunits, there's a line that's almost like one of those kind of just gorgeous throwaway lines that like, but nobody ever wants to read a whodunit more than once because what's the point? Then you know who's killed them. I always forget who's done it for a start. And as soon as I finish this book, I want to reread it because I, I really, I'm really curious to unpick it and see what I missed and where those clues were that suddenly become so clear once you know how it's going to end. Well, the trick is, and I love to hear that, I mean, it's, it's funny what Phil is saying, is that part of me is terrified that people will guess. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that actually it is my responsibility to give every reader the opportunity to guess. Mm-hmm. So all the clues are there. And actually, if you see the book in a certain way, you can work it out. That was the joy of Agatha Christie. Yeah. Whenever you get to the end of an Agatha Christie novel, you know that although she's pulled the wool over your eyes, you could actually have guessed it if only you were a bit more clever. So when I hear that people have guessed, I'm sort of annoyed, but at the same time, I think that is a, a reasonable thing to do with a book. Um, uh, and I have to say the other side of that is, is that I myself have occasionally forgotten who the killer is <laughs> in my own work. I remember once talking to a, a, an actor at a, um, a read-through of Foyle's War and I was explaining a scene and saying, but of course you've got to remember that you are the killer. And he said, no, no, I'm not, that's him over there. And I realised I'd actually <laughs> forgotten who the killer was in my own show. So just too many murders, too many deaths, too many detectives, too many clues. Uh, to embarrass myself, uh, when I was, I remember when I was at school and having to have read Othello, and this is probably where I learned my lesson where whenever I do an interview now, which I've done for many years, I've always read the book, I've always watched the film, the TV show, whatever it is, because uh, it was on Othello, and I'd done, I hadn't finished it. And at some point in the essay, I'd written, of course, like, Othello triumphs in the end. And there was just like a red line from my teacher going, apart from the fact that he dies. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't get to that bit. Well, I've done, I've done worse. I was once a judge in a literary competition and I had to read, I think, a dozen books. And I was absolutely methodical and disciplined and read all of them except one. I thought one was just so awful that nobody was going to bother. And of course, that was the one that all the rest of the judges loved and that's all they wanted to talk about. And then, so I had to put my hand up and fess up and then crawl away and come back a week later to talk about it, having read it. Uh, terrible. Um, you were talking about the golden age before that um, and 
you mentioned Agatha Christie, and we can have this conversation in more detail towards the end of the podcast, but you were the person, Anthony, who got me to first read an Agatha Christie because you, you almost dared me in an interview to do it, and I'd never read one, and I did and did Murder on the Orient Express and, and devoured it. But there's what, one of the things I love about your prose is how you're very knowing with what you write. So there's a bit very on in the book where... Uh, one, I won't say even say which character, but a character says, can you tell me what happened on the night of the murder, I asked. And even as I uttered the words, I felt slightly ridiculous. They sounded so old-fashioned, so clichéd. If I'd seen them in a novel, I'd have edited them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, therefore, you've got... I mean, there are two things to say. First of all, I do love Agatha Christie, but her language does leave something to be desired. I mean, it's, it's workmanlike rather than beautiful. And I, because most of the books I like and love, 19th century novels in particular, are so beautifully written with such rhythm and cadence and eloquence, I try to write well. But the joy of writing as Susan Ryland, who is an editor, is that I could write a paragraph and, as you've just demonstrated, then tear it apart and say, you know, that's terrible, it shouldn't be there. And, I, and that's one of the pleasures of writing the, these, you know, Bagpie Murders and Moonflower Murders, is having that character to contend with. And, of course, in both books... The, the solution to the murder is largely literary. I mean, these are books that have literary and linguistic solutions. Uh, and that's, again, part of the fun. We should hear a bit, I think, yeah. um, to give people a flavour of it. I know you've prepared a short... Th- oh, am I meant to read some? Yeah. Am I meant to yeah. read some? Oh, my God, do you mind if I run upstairs again? And no, no problem. Here. Oh, my God, this is the worst interview you've ever had. <laughs> Never mind, I'll be right back in one minute. Right back. <laughs> So, in answer to your question, what's going to be taking? This is a little section out of chapter one of the book where Susan has been approached by two people in Crete. She's working in a hotel, and they have come to her with a mystery, and this is her response to it. So, let me get this straight, I said. I got the sense of facts tumbling on top of each other. There was something they hadn't told me, something I needed to ask. You believe that maybe, despite all the evidence, not to mention the confession, Stefan Kodrescu did not kill Frank Paris, and that Alan Conway came to the hotel and discovered, in a matter of days, who the real killer was. He then somehow identified that person in Atticus Punt takes the case. Exactly. But that makes no sense at all, Pauline. If he knew the killer and there was an innocent man in prison, surely he would have gone straight to the police. Why would he turn it into a work of fiction? That's precisely why we're here, Susan. That's what we want to know. <laughs> so that's a sort of, that's a setup of it. And it's, um, you know, she then travels to England in order to find out the truth of a murder that took place eight years before, the clue to which is in the book written by one of her authors who is himself dead. It's as simple <laughs> as that. I love it. It's such a good setup. It really is. And kind of going back to what we were saying at the start, even, is that. When you're writing, I mean, this can apply, I guess, to any of your books, because I know you have so many beloved series of characters. Do you always have that reader in mind who is coming to the books out of sequence? Yes, I think, you, I think actually, Moonflower Murders will be more enjoyable to someone who has read Magpie Murders first, but it works completely as a standalone. Mm. I mean, I'm always very much on the reader's side, because I myself am not, curiously, the most competent of readers. I mean, if I'm reading a book with a lot of characters, I do tend to forget 
who mm-hmm. is who. So in a murder mystery where you've got a large number of characters, or in one of these books where you've got two books in one, so you've got two sets of characters, I always nudge. So, you know, when somebody spoke, I remind the reader in the same sentence, you know, he gave me a dentist, he gave me the smile that reminded me that he was a brilliant dentist, his teeth were white, yeah. or whatever. Just so you keep nudging people's memories as to who everybody is. And you don't, I hate it when I have to, especially if I'm reading on a Kindle, if I go onto an e-book and I'm trying to read and I forget who everybody is, you can press their name and it sort of pops up a little box who they are, but it still makes me so cross that I can't remember. <laughs> There's a quote I wanted to put to you uh, from this book again, just to see how much it mirrors you, Anthony. Uh, and the quote is, um, again, it's from Susan. Every writer is different, I said, but they don't steal exactly, they absorb. It's such a strange profession, really, living in a sort of twilight between the world they belong to and the world they create. On the one hand, they're monstrous egotists, self-confidence, self-examination, self-hatred even, but it's all about self, all those hours on their own. And yet, at the same time, they're genuinely altruistic. All they want to do is please other people. I've often thought it must demand a sort of deficiency to be a writer. Is, is that what you no, believe? Well... well you know me quite well, for we've met many yeah. times over the years, so you know that I am a monstrous egotist full of self-hatred. <laughs> I, I, I um, don't think you absolutely are. Absolutely autobiographical. <laughs> no, of course no, not. No, that's not the answer no, no, I know. It's, it's, it's not, that is not my view entirely of writers. I think when I began to write Magpie Murders and now Moonflower Murders, I was very interested in the nature of writing and of being a writer and of... You know, the, and why we read these books. And that's part of the pleasure of writing them. I mean, you may know, but I loved William Goldman's book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, one of the it's greatest great book. books about writing ever. Although I'm also very fond of Stephen King's book on writing. And mm. I had this idea of writing a book about writing, about writers, about doing my own version of those two things. I got about two pages into it before I realised, A, that it was very boring when I was writing, and B, that I, was in no, I wasn't competent enough to actually write it. I wasn't clever enough to be able to speak for all writers. So the answer was to put it into these detective stories as sort of just a as, a, as a, as a side dressing, if you like, as part of the fun. And so what you have there is a view of writing, which I suppose is sort of mine, but, but is not an absolute truth. It is just a sort of a, a discussion. You know, you could, you, it's something to discuss. And um, I guess on that point as well, then I'll bring up another quote from this, which is um, in the Alan Conway, so the Atticus Pund book within a book section, there's a line that really stuck out for me uh, and rang true, actually, which was, uh, the greatest evil occurs when people, no matter what their aims or their motives, become utterly convinced that they are right. And I wondered if you were addressing that sentiment anywhere in particular. Can you remind me who says that, Natalie? <laughs> that is Atticus Pund. Oh, it's Atticus. It does sound like yeah. Atticus. It does sound like mm. Atticus, yes. Um, there is a modern agenda in that, actually. Um, I think that... that if anything has characterised politics for me over the last few years, really, it has been the, the unpleasantness that comes with people who are certain they are right, people who have no mm-hmm. doubt. They're very dangerous in yeah. big questions about public life. Um, a, a sense of total kind of conviction politics. On the one hand, I suppose we want politics to say what they think and what they believe, but I think that if they don't listen to argument there is a danger, there is a real danger of things going rapidly off track. I think that's been the truth of the last couple of weeks, actually, to be honest, mm. uh, in some respects. Um, so, so I have to stop myself. Um, somebody tweeted the other day, you know, the trouble with Anthony Horowitz, he's so bloody left-wing. And I thought, oh, crikey, I've been a Conservative all my life and now I'm a left-wing. <laughs> um, uh, and it is true that, you know, politically I have tended to drift a little bit that way, but I hate to think that I'm forcing views, politics 
philosophy, sociology, whatever, into my book. So I, I, that's not the idea. Sometimes yeah. I just can't help myself, though, and you caught me out. <laughs> <laughs> um, Enjoy reading. so much that we want to talk to you about, and so um, uh, we'll cram as much as we can in, Anthony, before you know, we lose the line with you, et cetera, et cetera. But we've both just... Um, devoured the Alex Ryder series on Amazon Prime, which I just think is a fantastic piece of work. Um, And I'll come on to that in a moment. But I wanted to tell you something, because I think you're going to like this, but about the new Alex Ryder Nightshade. Now, this was only available, I think, in April. It's still new. And uh, last week, a friend of mine got in touch with me. She's listened to the podcast that Natalie and I are doing. And she was bereft because her 12-year-old son was point-blank refusing to read, and this had gone back four weeks, and he put all his books down, and he was just not reading. And I said to her, have you tried any of the Alex Ryder books? And she said, no. So where should I start? So I said, well, I would start with Nightshade, because it's new, it's just come out. Start there, and see if you can get him captivated. How about this for a compliment for you, Anthony Horowitz? The message came back, my son is now reading without me having to ask him to read. And then he also said to her last night, he showed her a passage in the book quite early on in the first 100 pages, and he said, do you think, Mummy, that the author wants us to be this excited? <laughs> That's lovely. Isn't that lovely? Well, Phil, thank you for that. I mean, to be honest with you, it's sort of... I never set out to be a crusader for reading or to be a sort of a, a beacon for getting young kids to books. But by accident, it happened. And for 20 years, people have been coming to me with similar sorts of stories about how the Alex Ryder books have somehow got kids started on the journey, the adventure, that I believe reading should be. And if I'm asked what books mean the most to me in all the books I've written, more than 50 now, it has to be the Alex Ryder books for that reason, purely and simply. But I think it's, you know, because I have come to believe in the power and the value of reading uh, and, and of a need for reading and fiction in particular. So it's a lovely story. I'm actually very impressed that this young man, this boy, started with Nightshade, which is actually a much older and tougher book than Stormbreaker or Point Blank. So he dived in at the deep end and he's managed to find his water wings, as it were. And so good luck to him. And I, you know, and I hope he has you know, lots more great books to come. Do you think there are other books like the Ryder books that you know of that are suitable for 12-year-olds? Because it's a difficult age. Natalie and I were talking about this earlier. I remember at that age, Anthony, I'd read Sue Townsend's Adrian Mole and loved it even though the, there were kind of references to wet dreams in there that I think my parents perhaps weren't so keen on me hearing about. But then I couldn't find anything else, and everything that came <laughs> via the school just bored me. Well, there are. I mean, there are a lot of great books out there. I mean, you know, Charlie Higson's Young Bond springs to mind, or the Enemy series, which are, which are fantastically good. I love Michael Morpurgo. I think he's one of the great storytellers. For Jacqueline Wilson, I mean, has absolutely captured a whole range of young... Uh, a, a, a whole young generation. Philip Pullman for fantasy... Obviously, the Harry Potter books. I mean, uh, Artemis Fowl. I mean, the film has just opened. I noticed a, not a rapturous reception, but the books are wonderful, always were. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of books out there. And I've just this, today come back from my local bookshop because, um, you know, I wanted to actually make the, the statement that I could buy a book, so I would buy a book, so I went in and bought a book. Um, and I glanced into the children's section there. None of mine, I'm afraid to say, but... Um, you know, I was impressed at how many new volumes there were there uh, for kids to read. Do you find as well that, because um, one of the things that we wanted to really do with this podcast in particular was that it's totally anti-snobbery about reading, as in, I think both of us ha- have had experiences in our adult lives and beforehand as well, where people are so judgmental about what you're reading. And I wondered 
how that's kind of manifested in your either reading or writing career? When I was growing up, I was encouraged to read better books. That's for sure. The, the sort of the slightly mm. sort of, especially in my teens, when I was reading Agatha Christie, The Saint, and um, and sort of you know, and Alistair MacLean, Desmond Bagley type books. I think that my father in particular was trying to persuade me to read classics and such. And it happened in my, when I was 19 that I remember I was staying with... Um, he was the High Commissioner in Istanbul. And um, he came in and saw what I was reading and said, oh, you shouldn't read that, read this, and gave me great expectations. And I thought, oh, yeah, thanks. But I was stuck in this place for a week, so I started to. And that began my lifelong love of Dickens. So mm. I'm all for enthusiasm and encouragement and trying to get people to raise their game above Alex Ryder, above what I'm doing, and, and you know, above YA fiction and into, you know, the, the, into, into great literature. But I really dislike the idea that anybody would try to prevent anybody from reading what they enjoy, whether it's Mills and Boone to, to, to whatever, you know, it's just reading is a muscle and the more you exercise it, the, the greater use mm. you can get from it. Start with the foothills of literature, Alex Ryder, Tracy Beaker, whatever it is takes your fancy. Apologies to Jacqueline Wilson if she doesn't consider herself in the foothills incidentally. And then climb up the mountain <laughs> to Jane Austen, to Charles Dickens, to Trollope, if that's where you want to go. I think it's a, mm. it's a process, it's an adventure, it's a journey. But I suppose one of the things we've encountered so far, speaking to various writers, especially, say, amongst the crime fiction genre, is that they feel they're not really taken seriously, even though they're shifting truckloads of books. What do you make of that? But why, what, what does being taken seriously actually yeah, mean? Yeah, good question, what do you want? good question. What do you really yeah. want from me? You know, all I want to do... When I write a book, I want to sell 10 million copies. Now, that doesn't happen. I'm not J.K. Rowling. <laughs> but I sell well enough, and I'm happy with my sales figures, and I'm happy with my audience, and I'm happy where I am in the sort of the, the scheme of things. But, but other trappings, literary awards, fill me with nothing but horror, um, fame in any sense of that word, you know, being recognised celebrity, irrelevant. All I really want to do is tell my story as loudly as possible to as many people as possible. And... And I think the other things you're talking about, that sort of recognition, are irrelevant to me anyway. And, and the idea that, you know, I've heard it, that crime fiction is, you know, a poor cousin. I don't think it is anymore, actually. Having spoken now to many, many crime writers and become a little bit a part of the crime community, I think there is a real reverence for writers from, you know, Steve Kavanagh through to Ian Rankin to, to is it Adrian McKinney, who just did, had a huge hit with The Chain? Adrian McGinty. Uh, which is... McGinty, yeah, wonderful, wonderful book incidentally, which I which I loved. Um, uh, to, and you know that I've been talking a lot about Don Winslow recently because I've only just discovered his books, which are awesome. Um, I think there is a great deal of of admiration for these writers, and I'm sure that all of them feel comfortable with the amount of admiration they have. Just on that point as well, it kind of goes back to what we were saying a little bit about people being judgmental or not and I also wondered with so this latest book so Moonflower Murders I know that there's often like a subtext like a different theme I saw an interesting quote from you about how when you're writing Foyle's War you you kind of made it about murder because you were under the impression that if you'd gone to the BBC and said I actually want to do a social commentary of Britain in the 1940s it wouldn't get passed in such a same way and I wondered if there was like a a different theme to Moonflower Murders that was is this some kind of social commentary about how judgmental British people quite often wrongly can be about people from other places? 
There is an element of that in there. I think the whole point of Moonflower Murders is that it is trying to be a whodunit plus. And you're absolutely correct about Foyle's War. You know, I wanted to tell, for example, the story of Archibald McKindo, the father of modern plastic surgery. But the only way I could sell that story was that there happened to be a murder at the hospital where he was working. So all the information about him I could put in, as it were, as the... As the, as the is it the coating on the pill or the pill inside the sugar coating? Whatever. <laughs> but it was, it, was, um, yeah. it, it was a sort of a thing. And it, indeed, I stopped writing Mag- Midsummer Murders. All these M's in my books. I'm going to have to stop doing alliteration. <laughs> less Midsummer Murders, I stopped writing because I felt that there was, as much as I loved that show and admired it and thought it was clever and, and it's, a, you know, it's a piece of TV history, it wasn't enough to spend two hours on a Sunday afternoon or evening just to discover that the butler did it. There had to be something more. That's why I invented Foyle's War, which allowed me to do that with the Second World War. And, in, and you're right, in these new books, there is an opportunity to discuss broad issues as long as we don't get too far away from the fact that it is a murder story and we want to know who did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this is out now, OK? Alex uh-huh. Ryder came out April... Then there's Hawthorne, presumably, is going to reappear in the kind of... That's the next book. Yeah. Hawthorne is my next book. Well, actually, I have been, during the, during the lockdown, uh, I've been writing a book for children, uh, one of my Diamond Brothers books. Ah. Uh, it's a detective story, uh, which I've been posting free on my website. The first seven chapters will have, will have been available. Um, and I'm going to finish that book before Christmas, just now, uh, and then it'll be a book next year. And it has the title of um, Where Seagulls Dare. Um, and... Uh, uh, and that's Alistair MacLean inspired, yeah. of course. So <laughs> as soon as that's finished, I'm going to start writing Hawthorne next, the third in that series. And then after that, I don't know. But um, uh, it's a little bit scary at the moment because I haven't, I've got a title for the next Hawthorne book and the beginning of an idea, but that's it. I'm going to have to start work soon, hard work. Is that unusual for you to not have it all mapped out? Because again, I know from Chatting to Phil before, you can often juggle multiple books on the go at the same time. Well, what's odd is, is that I've written the first two books of the series and I know very, very well what happens in the fourth, fifth and sixth, but the third one is a puzzle. And that's only because um, my publisher and I, in discussion, we've decided that I want to vary it this time. I mean, the first two books have had a murder takes place, Hawthorne goes to investigate and he drags me along and I sort of try and report on what's happening. But I feel that that formula is going to get a little bit tired unless I vary it. So I've come up with an idea to turn it again upside down a little bit. And Hawthorne doesn't actually even appear in the book for the first half. Um, but it's just a question of how to make it all work. I will get there. I just need a sort of a quiet week somewhere. Somewhere probably once I'm allowed to go into the countryside and stay in Suffolk, I can probably write it. And have the James Bond estate been back on to you? Because you remain the only person to have done two authorised stories. We, I'd love another horror. It's Bond. We are very kind, Phil, and I would love, I can tell you in all honesty, I would love to write another one and indeed do have a beginning of an idea in my head. Um, it's just a question, it's a three-way conversation. It's between the Ian Fleming estate, whether they would like to have me a third time, uh, and between a publisher who would like to have a James Bond book written by me and me uh, and my schedule. But I would say that it's looking good. I think there is a strong chance that I will do a third one and um, certainly I would like to. And an original story... Of course. And um, I got the impression from the last book that, that there might be more of an inclination for you to go back to, say, some of the gadgets, some of the cars, a bit of traditional Connery Bond? Well, actually, the, yes and no. I mean, when I think of James Bond, I do think of Sean Connery. That is my age. When I fell in love with Bond, he was Sean Connery. Uh, I've never disliked a Bond incident. I've liked all of them. Great thrill last year for me was actually meeting George Lazenby, which was really wow. exciting. 
Uh, yeah, so that, that, that was a real moment. I was too scared to go over and say hello to him. He was sitting at a table in the same restaurant as me. And then to my absolute delight, his publicist recognised me and he came over to say hello to me because <laughs> he'd read my book. So that was a real nice, because our poor George Lassenby has had a sort of a slightly chequered history of Bond. But, uh, but actually, did now the one, people didn't are revising their... People are revising their opinion of, of Her Majesty's Secret Service and all think it's rather good now. And he was a rather good Bond. So perhaps he was unfairly untreated in that. But a very, very charming and, and likeable man. Um, and yeah, one more Bond. I would like to do it. I mean, it's, it's a labour of love for me. And... Um, I'm hoping for And this. on the cars and gadgets, sorry? Yeah. Oh, sorry, that's what you... Uh, you, you um, my brain is all over the place today. Um, <laughs> yes, on the cars and gadgets, there aren't actually that many gadgets in the original novels. Um, uh, it, that was an invention of the films. There is a Q section in the books, and in From Russia With Love, Q section, I think, give Bond a briefcase which has got a knife hidden in it and maybe some gold coins. But they're not up to the sort of invisible cars and the sort of, you know, the more the, the ghetto blasters are the actually blast ghettos um, <laughs> uh, that we see, in, we, we see in later Bond films. You know, wonderful Desmond Llewellyn uh, yeah. in that part. Um, so my books tend to be very light. My Bond books tend to be very light in, on gadgets, if there are any at all. Um, and actually, Alex Ryder has gadgets, but only because kids demanded them. I was, wasn't sure whether to have them or not, but kids, when I was planning those books, said you can't do it without gadgets. So we have gadgets. Um, just on that, I should mention that uh, briefly, my godfather was Matt Monroe. So, um, oh, right. <laughs> so I have like Bond themes in my in my past, somewhat checkered as well. Um, but just on the Bond thing as well, I wanted to ask, I noticed in, again, in this book, there was a really, I mean, there are so many Easter eggs, I think, throughout this book anyway, that, as I've said, I want to reread it to rediscover them all. Um, but there was a line where you say uh, you've got a fictional book in this called Time to Die. And obviously the, the upcoming James Bond film is called No Time to Die. So what was the meaning of that Easter egg? I think, I have to be honest with you, Natalie, I'm, af I'm afraid that I have a feeling that I put that title into the book before I knew about the Bond film. So it's not actually an Easter egg, it's more a coincidence. No way. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, now you've mentioned it, I should actually have gone back and changed it because everyone's going to think that I'm having a poke, poking fun at the Bond film, yeah. which I am most certainly not. Uh, but you are right in thinking that there are a lot of, of, um, of things concealed, even inside the things that are concealed yeah. in that book. And I do that for fun. There's an absolutely wicked pun in, in the end of our, our Magpie murders. I think in possibly... Is it the last chapter? Anyway, either the last chapter or the penultimate chapter, but nobody oh, really? has ever noticed. And it's just sitting there for one day. One day somebody will oh, well, spot well, it. Well, I've, I've Googled so many oh. places in, Greek, in Greece, in Crete, in Greek mythology, like names <laughs> of places throughout since I finished reading this, which has been a total joy. But on one of those then, I wanted to ask about uh, within your book, within a book, so your Alan Conway story, your Atticus Pund book in this, I loved how there were made up mm -hmm. fictional quotes from other people there to try and sell that book in the middle and you've got one from Lee Child saying a famous actress is strangled and who's the suspect everyone the latest Atticus Pundas a real blast did you just write that for fun <laughs> I I did I wrote it in sort of what I imagine Lee Childs would speak like and he's I have actually met him a couple <laughs> of times at literary parties and of course he is um a totally totally nice guy and uh and I love his books too uh, and um, I emailed him and asked if he would mind having that quote in his name, and he just smiled and said yes, gave me an email, smiley face, and, 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 and permission. Uh, and Peter James is in there, who I know quite well, is a friend of mine. Uh, and it is rather fun uh, 
gathering together my friends for the quotes for and asking them to give a plug to a book that doesn't actually exist. Have you ever found a situation where, because I can't remember who we spoke to in that, but we spoke to one writer who said that they'd found themselves starting a book and then thought, oh, it's too similar to one I've already done. And with so many murders, as you've already referred to in your book, have you ever started to kill a character off and thought, oh, no, I've killed them off in a previous book? I have occasionally um, found myself drawn to the same idea twice. I mean, it does happen. I, and I'm always worried about also, what worries me more is turns of phrase and speech, you know, speech patterns where I may have be quoting myself from earlier books. But there's not much I could do about it. I've written 53 books now. Yeah. And so that's an awful lot of books to go and check each time I write a sentence. So I haven't done it before. Um, but no, I mean, you know, the joy of writing murder mystery is that there are so many different variations and permutations and different ideas and things that come to mind that that, that to me is the ongoing pleasure of writing them uh, and, and thinking up stuff that I have never done before, that nobody has done before. And I think, you know, for example, the reason why um, Frank Paris is murdered is novel. It hasn't, you know, I, I can't think of a book that has done, uh, you know, had somebody killed for quite such a sort of a bizarre and unpleasant reason. Um, yeah. And that's it's, it's what I'm so well for. done. Well, thank you. I mean, because it is, it is, it, it would be easy. And I was, it's always, it is easy to sort of, you know, that the husband murders his wife because he can't stand her. It's sort of the obvious, or the wife murders her husband because she can't stand him. Um, is sort of the, is obvious. And you try to avoid it. You try, or if you, if you have got to have a husband kill a wife or a wife kill a husband, you try to make something about it perverse and different so that it'll bring a smile at the end. I, that's what I'm looking for, I think. And 50s, golden age detection, is full of great, great motives and great ways of killing people. It's one of the reasons I love it. But the other thing which you always get right, which uh, I think some books in this genre don't get right, is it's never about the gruesome nature of the crime. It's about the puzzle that the crime gives us, the reader. That's it. The funny thing about a murder mystery is that actually the murder is the least important thing in the book. It, it, that's not quite what I mean. What I mean to say, it is, it is the most significant thing. It is the mainspring for the action. But it's actually only an excuse to get into the lives of the characters, the reasons why the emotions have been so heightened and why everybody is brought together for the duration of the book. But the actual murder itself, yeah, I mean, I quite... I, with my Alex Ryder hat on, I have to say I do like a violent death, but um, especially one with a smile attached to it. But, um, <laughs> but, but by and large, in the, in the books... Um, you know, the murders just happen and we get on with Are that. Are you pleased with the TV series, by the way? We never asked you that. I know in Nightshade, I spotted oh. that you dedicated it to OF and BOC, which are the two male leads. You are indeed right. But uh, Brennica Connor and Otto Farrant are just so delightful and so pleasant to work with and so talented. And I think that they have really made the show the success it is, along with Guy Burt, the writer of the scripts, who did a fantastic job, and our two directors, um, Chris Smith and Andreas Prochaska. Um, it, it's it, it's been a joy for me this this show because it's to give Alex Ryder over having to be honest with you slightly mucked it up myself with Stormbreaker Stormbreaker didn't work out how I wanted it to and I don't think it's a bad film or, or in any way I think it, it's a film that didn't quite work I think there are lots of good things in it but nonetheless it went wrong if it hadn't gone wrong we'd have made ten more films by now um, so. To hand it over to someone else, particularly to Guy Burt, another writer, was really sort of a sense of my baby being wrenched away from me. And it was quite difficult to come to terms with that and to say, no, you can't keep arguing and saying what you want. It's no longer your show. So I think Guy did a great, great job in understanding what was in the book and also understanding what to throw out.
and what to do that was completely new. And, and my hat goes off to him, really. I mean, he, he did a very, very good job. And I know it's, um, I mean, it's always hard to say when deals are being done all the time, but are there any stories of yours that you don't want to be adapted for film or TV that are too precious to you that you just want to hang on to? Natalie, I want every single one of them <laughs> to be adapted for TV and films. Why hasn't anybody done The House of Silk, Moriarty, um, uh, the two Hawthorne books? Uh, Magpie Murders might be on TV next year. We're shooting it, uh, we're hopefully shooting it in February. I've written the scripts for it. Wow. And therefore Moonflower Murders too. My, my other kids' books, The Diamond Brothers, The Power of Five, I beg of any producers listening to this iPod to get in touch. Should I, can you put the, no, there's no bottom of the screen to put a phone number. But uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. No, the truth is, is that, I think even a less than satisfactory adaptation of your book is still an advertisement for the book. It still draws attention to the book. And I always used to say that no matter how Stormbreaker mm. might have turned out, it was a 90-minute commercial for Alex Ryder. Um, and as I say, I liked the film. Um, so so it is, I, I don't worry. And a, a TV adaptation could be good, it could be bad, it could be brilliant, it could be terrible. The book is still there. And mm -hmm. was it more yeah. beneficial for you that this was on Amazon Prime? It wasn't on a domestic network. You don't have the same restrictions for episode length. Does that help you seeing your written material transposed more accurately to the big screen? Not really, no, because Amazon came in... Don't forget what happened in this instance was, and this is very unusual, Sony Productions made the Alex Ryder series, all eight parts of it, without a market, without a sale. So in other words, they, they gambled many, many millions of pounds on being able to sell the show once they had made it at the length that they did, which actually is the correct length for an ITV oh, hour, okay. 46 right. minutes per episode. Right. So it could go terrestrial, it could go to any of the platforms. Then they went to the market to see who would take it, and Amazon came in and, and, and took it, and that's now an Amazon show. Uh, and I'm very happy with that as a home. Um, I think Disney, for example, who showed interest, would have been wrong for, for Alex Ryder. Um, so so it's, all, it's all worked out well, but actually I don't think that the final marketplace, as it were, Amazon, had any bearings on season one. If there's a season two, however, I'm sure they'll be much, much more involved and more proactive, and that might make changes. It'll be an interesting ride, though fortunately I'm not in the writing seat, so I can just watch from the side and say, good luck, guy. But you're in the exec seat, aren't you? <laughs> Be your exec producer, right? Yeah. Uh, EP. I mean, those two letters, what do they mean? It means that people listen respectfully to what I say before they ignore it. Um, <laughs> and when will you find out if there's a two? Because there should be a two. Um, I think we'll find out. In, I mean, the real problem, actually, is COVID, obviously, because filming at the moment is pretty much impossible. You can't have social distancing on a film set, and your actors can't social distance, nor can they wear masks, obviously. The biggest problem, though, is insurance. You cannot insure a television show. So if you are six weeks into making Alex Ryder season two and Otto goes down with the virus, and you have to simply stop production, that can cost you many, many millions of pounds, and it would bankrupt the company, it would damage Sony. I mean, so you need insurance, and the insurers aren't coming forward to offer that. So th that is a serious problem for filmmakers as to how they're going to proceed at all across the country with all shows. Um, and I think you will see many, many production companies, I'm afraid, going out of business in the next few months, because production isn't possible. Um, there is some talk of the government perhaps getting involved in some kind of insurance scheme, but, but it needs to happen soon. It is, a, I mean, uh, you know, I can't 
shed too many tears for my own industry because, of course, the whole world is affected and everybody is in the same boat and many, you know, the, the financial consequences of this virus are still to come. Um, and, but, but that said, you know, I'm married to a producer, I've worked with the same company for a long time and I, I'd hate to see it go. Um, I also feel like your brain, does it just never stop? Do you ever get downtime? <laughs> like, it's, it's going at... I mean, um, I, I'm kind of quite similar, to be honest. Like, I'm always best mind busy. I'm not good uh, if I've got time off, so to speak. I'm trying to think, Natalie, we have met. Have yeah, we? I've, I've, we've quite, yeah, I've sort of interviewed on red carpets and junkets and stuff, because I used to work at Radio But I've seen you before. I mean, I mean, I'm looking at the screen trying to remember where we've actually come across, <laughs> but I know we have actually done that before, so I'm glad that I'm not just yeah. imagining that. Um, yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> as a journalist and as a broadcaster and all the rest of it, you, you buzz with energy too. I mean, only Phil in the middle of the mm. screen there, so lying back half asleep. <laughs> and I didn't say that, Phil. Sorry, sorry. Um, um, no, no, no. Um, I, uh, I love what I do. That's actually, I think that's probably true of all three of us. We yeah. love what yeah, we do. Absolutely. We're very privileged because we get to yeah. do it and somebody even occasionally pays us to do it. And, um, you know, for 35 years now, I've been a professional writer. And I say one thing that... Things have changed in my life, but one thing hasn't, and that is that when I pick up a pen, and I normally write with a fountain pen, I get that same sense of excitement, of anything is possible, of, of this is fantastic, this is fun, this is going to change the world, this is, yes, going to sell 10 million copies, even if it doesn't, every single time. And actually, that goes back to even when I was 10 years old, when I opened a book with that excitement, the new Willard Price has arrived in the library. I've read Shark Adventure, Lion Adventure, Cannibal Adventure, but here is Whale Adventure. Oh, it's going to be Roger and Howell, where are they going this time? That sense of, of must-have and that sense of got to turn the page and got to lose myself in the book has never left me. And here I am now in my 60s, and I still burble with the excitement of a 10-year-old, which, even as I say it, feels a little bit pathetic, but nonetheless is true. <laughs> no, it's not pathetic at all. It's something that I think human beings should strive not to lose because... Uh, they're childhood, yeah. Phil. They're childhood. Yeah. There are two types of people on this planet. The ones who remember they were children and the ones they f who have forgotten it. The ones who remember it are, are normally the nicer ones. <laughs> the ones who still have that child I agree. So, um, Anthony, we always conclude our podcast by asking writers to give us uh, two or three recommendations of other books from other writers. Can be fiction, non-fiction, can be anything. Just something that if one of your friends phoned you now and said, Anthony, I've got nothing to read, what could you recommend? Okay, um, I've been reading Don Winslow, and I've, I've yeah. been a, come a bit of a Don Winslow bore. He's probably getting fed up with seeing me tweet about his books. But The Power of the Dog, followed by The Border, and then, The Cartel, and then The Border, are Cartel. three of the greatest crime novels ever written. They are the godfather of of mafia, of the godfather of Mexican um, narcos uh, and drug running. Yeah. And they, are, they yeah. have a brilliant, brilliant connectivity with real life. When I say that the, um, the, the president in the final book is a sort of a, a, a celebrity TV host called, um, with, with connections to crime and, and a total corrupt manner. His name in the book is Dennington, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know who he's writing about. Uh, and they are yeah. really extraordinarily good. Um, Sarah Waters is a, is a writer I often talk about because um, um, I love her work passionately and I think that she is... You know, when you talk about the levels of writing and trying to climb that mountain, she is a wonderful step on that journey because her stories are so accessible. The Little Stranger I read recently, one of the greatest ghost stories I think I've ever read, even though I'm not sure that there is actually a ghost in it. Uh, and um, <laughs> The Paying Guests, an absolutely wonderful uh, pre-mid-between-the-wars but a novel about London life. Um, and, and Affinity, which has got one of the greatest twists I've ever read in a book. Um, she, but her language... I don't know, do you know her, Natalie? Have you read her books? 
No, I haven't actually. But I, I, other people have recommended her to me, and she's on my list because I read a ghost story last year. Uh, Michelle Paver, I think it was. Oh, I love Michelle Paver's books. Yeah. Yeah. And I read that book too. I read her first ghost story book. I thought it was matter. absolutely. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. She, of course, started life as a children's author. Yeah. Uh, with books set in sort of prehistoric times. Wolf Boy, I think, was her most famous mm. one. And then made the journey into adult writing, which is not an easy journey to make and, and has done it very, very successfully. And I love her work. Um, so there's two. Uh, let me think of what else I've been reading recently. Um, I've been reading John Dixon Carr. I've just made an acquaintanceship with Dr. Gideon Fell. If you want to go for a, a peculiar, sort of, you know, straightforward old lock, locked room mysteries, which I, which I so enjoy. And Soji Shimura, if you can find his books, uh, there are two of them translated from Japanese. Crooked House and the Tokyo Zodo, Zodiac Murders are two wonderfully inane, uh, but, but brilliant and dazzling um, whodunits, murder mysteries. And I'll tell you who else I like very much, and I'm going to forget her name because I've become to this interview and discussion with you so ill-prepared, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> the books are um, The Hunting Party was her first one, and um, The Wedding Guests, or The Wedding Party is the second. I'll look them up for And you. I think her name is Lucy Foley. Yeah, I think it is Lucy Foley. Again, I haven't read them. But They're I've terribly so clever. People. They're very, very well put together and very entertaining and very well done. And she has got a complete ability to structure perfectly uh, a murder mystery. I think the second one is... The first one is definitely called... The Hunting Party. Yeah, The Hunting Party, Lucy Foley. Yeah. And is it The Guest List, the other one you're referring to? The Guest yeah. List. Was the other yeah. I, was, I was there, pretty much, yeah. And they're terrific, yeah. too. Um, um, have you ever read, um, again, I can't remember the author now, but Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day? I read that quite recently, and it's such a glorious uh, snapshot of the 1930s. I loved it. I shall get that. I shall write, look, I'm getting, here's my pen to write it down. Like, <laughs> Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. I love, I love book recommendations. Um, Antid, last time I met you in person, you, you told me to read a Christie, and I want you to give me a, a classic to read. To tell me, just tell me. Well, if you want to read an Agatha Christie... So I've only done Murder favorite, on the Orient Express. It's the only one I've done. My favourite Agatha Christie is Cards on the Table, in which, what's his name, Mr Shapiro invites Poirot to a game of bridge at which all the players, north, south, east and west, are murderers of Mr Shapiro's acquaintance. And if that's his name, instead, I'm just sort of off, right, talking off the cuff, uh, Mr Shapiro is then murdered by one of them. But what makes the book so interesting and intriguing is that there are only four suspects right. mm. um, and yet you won't guess it's really really <laughs> clever and it's probably my favourite Agatha Christie the other one I'd say is Death on the Nile it's a terrific it's also one of the shortest Agatha Christie's terribly clever and atmospheric because of course she loved um, the, the Nile and she loved archaeology and, and the Egypt and everything else um, and that's about to be filmed by Kenneth Branagh so you might want to mm. read it before oh, yeah. um, the film version gives it all away yeah, I really liked it. And then there were none as well. Well, of course. And then there were, funnily enough, I've just done a TV uh, series for Quibi in America. Mm. Um, and it's a 12 part, which actually plays on your mobile phone. This is, they, they do 12 parts and the parts are all seven or eight minutes each. It's very, very short form drama. And I've done a murder mystery, which is set on an aeroplane that crashes in the Mexican jungle. And there are nine survivors. I mean, there are eight Seven, six, five. And of course, it's that, and then there were none by another name. Yeah, or yeah. A variation yeah. on it anyway. Amazing. Um, um, I just wanted to say before we say thanks so much is that I, uh, obviously, this is a podcast so people won't be able to see where we are, but I can see that you're sitting in a room with a bookcase. And I think when I was looking up other interviews of you, is that a fake bookcase that leads to a secret room in your house, Anthony Horowitz? Um, 
Oh, second, there it is there. Yes, that's, uh, yeah. that's it there. It is, do you really think, Natalie, that I would have a fake <laughs> bookshelf with just fake books in it? Every one of those books is a classic. and it, Some of those books are my father's books and some of them are, are mine and they're all my James Bond books up there. But just one of those shelves, I'll show you. Hold on. Oh, wow, Anthony's now going to his book cabinet. What have you uncovered? Oh. Yeah, it's a door, it's a door. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I was going to say, that is my secret passage, but it's been on so many, you know, on, on so many TV programmes and bits and pieces and, 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 uh, and uh, various... And you know, where does um, it lead to? Internet things, that it is the least secret, secret passage in the world. <laughs> but there it is. And the, the inside there is my cabinet of curiosities, and it also there's a staircase that leads up to my office. That comes from my love of Tintin and secret passages. I always so wanted cool. to have a house with a secret passage. And there it is. And that goes back to what you Why were saying uh, earlier on, that if you retain your childhood into adulthood... But, you know, everything in this house, this house is full of magic tricks and toys and, and, and illusions and puzzles. And I love to surround myself with, with things that are completely irrelevant and, and ridiculous. I'll show you one. It can't be seen on your thing. But here in front of here <laughs> is, a, is an elephant and it's a toy. And if I do that, I don't know if you can see. Yeah, it's, 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 it's trunk out, goes round. It's trunk rounds around. And underneath it is a magnet, which is actually doing that movement. <gasps> And this is the most stupid thing in the whole world. And I can't <laughs> tell you how much I love it. And I think in a funny way, it exemplifies what a good whodunit should be. In the sense that it doesn't have an enormous value in itself, but it just makes you smile. Oh. It does. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. There we go. A lovely sentiment. <laughs> what a pro. What a pro. Auntie, thank you um, so much for doing bestsellers. But look, always, always a pleasure talking to you. You are so good at this and they make me feel so happy. Oh. Natalie, love talking to you too. And, and, and thank you so much for being part of this. Um, and let's all get together and do what we used to do, which is sort of that would be lovely, and drink yeah. And, you know, when, when once again human contacts allowed. Yeah, that would be lovely. <laughs> well, listen, where do you want to start there? Because I've got so many things I need to say to you about that interview. <laughs> really? Well, okay. Yeah. Well, will you go if you're busting? Well, the first one is I could tell that he definitely knew you. Right, and he was trying to place you, and he was going through his roller decks. I think in his, whilst he was talking, because then about two thirds of the way through, that annoying person from red carpets <laughs> of many a year. So there was that. Uh, the other thing I want to say to you is, you know, when he talks about Bond, and he talked, I thought it was really interesting because I've not read enough Bond. I've watched all of them, obviously, but I haven't mm. read enough Fleming. Right, I've only read one Fleming, yeah. and I loved it. But are you aware of the argument around Ian Fleming at the moment that? Yeah, yeah, I am. And also, well, James, my husband, he's read pretty much right. all of them. So he's sort of been going back. And whenever you, we go to a secondhand bookshop or um, he's always searching for like a particular format of the Fleming Bond books that he's been collecting. So, yeah, he's he's well versed and he's read me loads of passages and <laughs> loads of really inappropriate things that Bond has said and done and a lot of the misogyny in it. Um, but still uh, fascinating spy yeah, stories. So um, I wasn't I wasn't aware that there are fewer gadgets in, in those books than there. Mm. Um, but when you mentioned Q and the wonderful Desmond Llewellyn, it took me straight back to 1998 at Radio 1, and I was sent to a Bond convention at Piccadilly Circus. And at the convention was Richard Keel, who was Jaws, and Desmond Llewellyn, who was mm -hmm. Q. And Desmond yeah. was just couldn't have been nicer or sweeter. Did this really nice interview with us for Radio One, and then I had to stop the mini disc. Remember those? And I had to say to him, mm. uh, "Listen, I need a payoff for the piece. Oh, would you mind? Can you admonish me in the way that you admonish 007? And he said, "Yeah, of course. How far do you want me to go?" And I said, "Oh, full tilt." I said, "Really, tell me off." 
So he said, no problem at all. <laughs> so he said, are you recording? And I said, yeah. And I went, he went, Williams, do behave. We're not going to get through these gadgets if you carry on in that manner. <laughs> <laughs> and it made the end of the package. And I treasure it so much. Yeah. It was just so lovely. Yeah. And I think you can tell when Anthony talks about Bond. I'd be so pumped if he got a third. Have you read either of his other Bonds? No, I haven't. I haven't. As but, James. You know, as you know, I... Uh, you know what? I don't know if he has actually. Trigger Mortis is um, just excellent. It's really excellent. Yeah, and and I think you you get that from him, don't you? Because it's that respectful. It comes from a respectful yeah. place, so you know that it's going to be done in the right tone and with the right voice. And um, I mean, I, and I would say the only reason I haven't read them is I think, you know, interestingly, the pair of us coming to this podcast, you have read more crime than I have anyway. I tend to read more. Um, I don't like the term women's fiction. But um, I tend to read books that are more about women protagonists sure. um, and whether that's been in crime or elsewhere. And so that hasn't led me down as many of these avenues, I don't think, um, just for that reason. But, you know, interestingly on that, I wouldn't say that I was a fan of crime fiction. Mm, no, I wouldn't say that I go out. I wouldn't, you know, if I walked, if you and I walked into a bookshop now, if it, that hopefully they're still open. We recorded this a while ago. Um <laughs> I don't think I would be saying to you, follow me to this crime section. I would literally just be whatever's at the front of the shop. It just, but you're right, yeah. it does turn out that more of them are, are more of that bent. I do like a good mystery. I do like to be, yeah. I like to put a book down by the side of my bed and as I'm nodding off, think, so I wonder if, well, hang on, that can't be that because that person was there and he's just mm. said that about that and, you know. Yeah, well, I had that with this one. You know, I, I really wanted to... I was staying up so late some nights uh, because I was, you know, it was, I literally didn't want to put the book down. And, you know, it is actually a female uh, protagonist at the centre of Moonflower. Mm, it is. And, yeah, I definitely want to go back and reread this one and go back to Magpie yeah. Murders as well. Uh, one thing, actually, I don't know if you saw, because we recorded these on Zoom. And uh, I was going to say, but then I figured I'd made a tit of myself enough in these interviews. So we record them on Zoom so you can see me. But at one point, I think you thought I was signalling that I wanted to ask the next question. But I wasn't. I was saluting a magpie. <laughs> he just flown out of the window and it was a solo magpie. Is that what so I, I genuinely thing, you know? thought? Yeah, because I left a big gap. Did you notice? You did, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I was saluting the magpie, yeah. That's very yeah. funny. You know, the other thing as well, and um, this is a credit to the, ma the man that Anthony Horowitz is, is that after we finished recording, Natalie wanted to make sure that she'd got all of the Easter eggs in this book. And I'm not going to tell you <laughs> what these extra ones are, but he gave her two additional ones. And yeah. uh, I thought, A, that was incredibly generous. B, all I could mm. see on your face and his face was utter delight. He was delighted you wanted to know, and you were <laughs> delighted you'd been put out of your misery and you'd been told where they uh -huh. were. Yeah, well, it makes you want to kind of, again, I don't want to give it away and, and spoil things for people who haven't read it yet, but you want to just investigate the words uh, even closer. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's joyful to be able to do that. That's what I love about books. If you read Moonflower Murders, my advice to you is read it as a, as a, and pretend you're a detective because there's a clue everywhere. There are clues mm -hmm. everywhere. It's like the usual suspects in yeah. that sense, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's really well done. It's, yeah, it's super smart and it's clever, but also it's not... Um, it's not patronising no. and it's also not smug because no. uh, I think sometimes, again, not that I have the greatest breadth of whodunit knowledge, but sometimes they can come over as being a bit smug that they know more than you and you're kind of catching up yeah. with them, but that's not like the Like the case. kind of aha reveal. Ah, you yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, you feel like you're on it together and you're kind of navigating yeah. your way through. Um, yeah, it's, it's very brilliant. inclusive. 
Yeah, really, really mm. good. I'm so pleased that we got to speak to Anthony Horowitz. And if it hasn't happened already, we're going to go out for a drink or should we push it for dinner with Anthony Horowitz? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> we can tap him up for yeah, dinner. Yeah, yeah. He'll definitely do that. It's just whether we're allowed, isn't it? You know, yeah. or whether yeah. we have to just sit in different restaurants and do it on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite 